All right, hello everyone. My name's Sean, and you're listening to Incredible Discourse, the podcast where we explore the past, we explore exploring the past, and we spend a little bit too much time in Japan. Uh, the last couple episodes, I guess the last you know 13 plus episodes, uh, we've been surveying the Japanese archipelago, and we did that you know fairly, um, I guess fairly. Uh, briefly you know I, I tried to make keep the episodes pretty short um as concise as i could and you know sometimes i got a little ranty but it's what it is and um today we're moving away from a, a general survey of japanese or the history of the japanese archipelago and we're gonna be going into more specific uh, i guess more particular topics um yeah that's that's uh that's the plan for today uh Today's topic, what we're going to be diving into a little bit, is going to be the early states in Japan and or uh, early state formation in the Japanese archipelago, if you want to be more technical about it. Today on Incredible Discourse. Incredible Discourse. Today we live in a world where um, societies and cultures are organized under a system known as states or governments, if you will. And these institutions have become so prevalent and, perv- I guess, pervasive throughout um, contemporary society and culture that the idea of trying to explore and understand when they developed, right, when they kind of, uh, I guess, when the advent of them was in human history becomes difficult because from our perspective, it's like a natural progression for, you know, human society and civilization to go from hunter-gatherer and then the, you know, as social complexity develops for there to develop a state. And although this inevitably happens, you know, the vast majority of places, um, there's a problem that exists when we correlate social complexity with the development of a state. And often these two correlate with each other, at least, you know, Archaeological interpretations correlate social complexity with the development of a hierarchy and a state or a government of some kind. And um, although potentially true, there's no strong evidence that um, that this is the case. And this is one of the things that we're going to be exploring today in, you know, in the episode. We're going to be looking at early Japan or the early Japanese archipelago because, you know, I refuse to acknowledge the Japanese archipelago as modern nation state of Japan prior to at least at least Shotoku in like the in the 7th century. So the Japanese archipelago because at the point where Shotoku exists um I guess we technically have a state that exists. But we're trying to explore before that. When in the history of the Japanese archipelago does governance kind of, you know, rear its head. So if we're going to do that, if we're going to, you know, head on back to the early history of the Japanese archipelago and try to see when early states formed, first we got to define our terms, right? If we don't know what a state is, or if we just say social complexity is what a state is, then as soon as we see, you know, as soon as we see uh, evidence for social complexity, and, you know, complex uh, cultural organization or whatever, we're going to say, boom, that's when, the state, that's when the state starts. But for our purposes today, and for kind of a realistic understanding of what 
the state apparatus is and what states are. Uh, we're going to define that first. So today we're going to be defining what a state is. We're going to be um, looking at its attributes and then we're going to compare that to the archaeological record for the Japanese archipelago and we're going to see you know we're going to try to establish when where how and by whom a state comes into being in the Japanese archipelago so that's kind of the the game plan for today so first on our list is that we have to define what a state is today i'm going to be referencing a lot of uh, murray rothbard in um in my exploration of what a state is and in terms of defining it cuz he gives a really good thorough analysis of what the state is, particularly in his book, or I guess long essay, Anatomy of the State. But throughout most, much of his writing, he uh, he really talks about what a state is, what the role of states are, and um, he gives some reactions to that. But I don't want to spoil anything for if you haven't read Rothbard. If you haven't, I highly suggest it. Anatomy of the State is like 60 or 70 pages, really short, really... Um, Really good read. Simple read, quiet, not quiet, but it's a it's a quick read. But a lot of his definition of what a state is, I'm going to be laying out here. I don't do as great a job as he does in the book because, you know, I'm not him. And uh, just short of reading the book to you, <laughs> I'm going to do my best to just summarize it a little bit in terms of uh, defining a state, its characteristics, and, um, you know, how it comes about and uh, how it sustains itself. So now when we think of states, and by we, I mean the vast majority of people, because in this regard, I'm in the extreme minority of people when it comes to understanding and defining a state, right? The average general Joe Schmo, general Joe Schmo, kind of has this, you know, well, there's a high probability that general Joe Schmo has this understanding of the state that is, you know, an institution of social services, you know, that it is an amiable organization for achieving social ends and that it's a necessary, that it's necessarily, that it's a necessity, a necessary means. Wow, lots of, lots of words today. That it's a necessary means for uh, prosperity and social complexity. And this last one, right, the fact that most people see you know, the state and a form of government as essential, as a prerequisite for social complexity and for prosperity. This is kind of gets at the heart of the role that the state plays in the modern, you know, uh, disposition, in the modern understanding of the world as it is. But today we're going to, we're going to take a, take a bit of a hammer to that and um, do some parade raining, if you know what I mean. So, now we're going to address the realities of what a, what a state isn't. And I'm not the state, and you're not the state. Because let's say if you were to criticize yourself or threaten yourself, you, you know, if you threaten yourself, actually, <laughs> if you threaten yourself, the state comes and they address it, right? Because now you're a risk to yourself. And for some reason, the state is, uh, is in charge of you and will prevent you from hurting yourself because they own you and you don't own yourself. But I'm getting ahead of myself because in the you know the the modern nation state concept and you know when we think about modern democracies the attempt to give the illusion that 
we are the government exists, right? That power is derived from the consent of the governed. But there's a couple flaws in this line of thinking, right? So I want to deconstruct this idea and the function of the state so that when we begin to try and understand how early states are formed in Japan, we have a common starting point and understanding of what the state is. So if we say the state is we, right, is us, then anything it does is voluntary. It's doing it to itself, right? So if there's public debt, the state taxes one group to give to another, which is consensual because all of the groups of people are the government because we are the government and the government is, you know, is ruled by the consent of the governed. So if you're getting taken, you know, money taken away from you to give to someone else, apparently, according to state logic, that's you consenting to it. The next group, or next group, next thing is that when um, when people are conscripted and or imprisoned, this, according to this line of logic, is consensual, right? If you are drafted into the military or conscripted into the military to go fight foreign wars, it's consensual because you're the government, and as the government, you have now forced yourself into, uh, into a situation where you are most likely going to be uh, either killed or at very risk to yourself in general. But you don't get a lot of rights or freedoms in the military, especially when you're forced into the military uh, on pain of probably imprisonment and or death, depending on what level of coercive violence that's going to be brought against you. Oh, but if you if you do that, you're treasonous, which is betraying yourself. And um, that's a big no-no when you live in a state. Fun fact. Um, and also... And I think this is the, one of the biggest things that we miss today is that minority oppression is consensual under the democratic situation, right? Because as long as we are the people who are consenting to the governed and or the government is us and we are the government, it's consensual because, you know, the entire polity has agreed that this should take place when it's acting as a we. And in reality... You know, when you have two wolves and a sheep sitting next to each other and they take a vote who they should eat for dinner, sheeps don't tend to come out on top in a, in a democratic situation, right? It's not like the sheep's like, oh, well, they voted against me. Guess I'm going to get eaten. And that's, um, that's where the legitimacy of the democratic process comes from. It's the majority rule. And uh, the majority rules don't always favor minorities. Fun fact. Just throwing that out there for you. And we can see this playing in the real world, real world, world with um, parts of China, parts of the United States, parts of uh, basically name a country, and you can find some sort of uh, like name a country that has you know a democratic situation going on, and you can find minorities being oppressed within that democratic you know status with uh, I guess order and or people ignoring you know, the democratic order, and then just doing it anyway, without a vote, because they, uh, they have that power, that power invested in them by the people, apparently. So now that we know that we're not the state, and I hope that I've made that clear, because um, when, oh, this is a really good one. So Rothbard makes this really great example where if you commit a crime against society and or the state, right, or us, like society, and you are um, 
you're no longer society because you've criminaled, you've criminaled, you've offended or you've uh, transgressed against society. So that puts society's everyone except for you as an individual. So every single individual person is not society. Everyone except for them is society. It was, he put it much better, which is why I said, I'm not going to attempt to just like rehash the books and all of his works. You can read it pretty good. But my point in this first part is that we are not the state and the state is not us. The state is a separate apparatus that exists outside of the majority of people. So then what is this thing that I'm referring to, right? What is the state? It is an organization in society which attempts to maintain a a monopoly, a monopoly on the use of force and violence in a given territory, territorial area. Pretty simple. Organization in society attempts to maintain a monopoly on the use of force and violence in a given territorial area. That's basically what it is. Now, the state is established in violence and maintained through a combination of that establishing violence and propaganda. Because you can only beat a territorial area into submission for so long before it starts to... um, to fight back against you. And once an area, once a, a population decides that it's going to, um, I guess, uh, resist, you're going to get yourself a situation like Northern Ireland. You're going to get yourself a situation like Vietnam, like uh, Afghanistan, and then pick any other country that the U.S. has tried to um, occupy because that's basically what's happened. You know, when a population decides, we don't want you here, it doesn't matter how much, I guess it does matter how much violence you bring against them, but it's just going to end up killing people. It's not going to actually establish the uh, the rule that they intend to. You know, you're not going to get the submission from a people solely through violence. You have to use propaganda. And propaganda is the, um, it's not the health of the state, because that's, that's war. War is the health. Propaganda is like the, um, I don't know, it's the inspiration. So aside from being an organization that you know, monopolizes violence within an area. It also establishes um, itself as one of the only organizations that systematically um, acquires its wealth from theft. You know, you can see like a like a burglar or a criminal or uh, another criming individual. The the manner in which they acquire goods and services from others through the means of violence is much more sporadic than the state. So as opposed to an animal eating another animal, which would be like the example of the highway bandit, the state is more of like a parasite, you know, where it has established a system to continuously uh, extract resources from a population and or area. Oh, the only other organization that does something like that is um, like an organized crime family. But if we're looking at this definition the way I've laid it down, it's basically an unofficial government and or a government small enough or a state that's small enough to um, be ignored or an, an illegitimate state in the eyes of society. And that's basically the only thing that pre- that's the difference between like the mafia and the Yakuza and the, I don't know, the federal government of uh, the European Union. They've got a federal government. I guess it's, yeah, the, the European Union's government. 
bunch of thieves, bunch of thieving thieves. But if we think about the state acquiring its wealth through theft and coercive violence, how do other people acquire wealth and or produce things? Well, they do it through labor. Man, isolated, is born into the world, naked and alone. And he must transform nature, the world around him, in order to survive and to satisfy his wants. Now, I know it took me 16 minutes to get here, but we're going back to Japan. And if we look at the Jomon period, the Jomon period is a great example of man isolated in the world, transforming nature around him, and uh, essentially using his will to modify the world to meet his needs and wants, right? So the Jomon peoples, they developed the culture, they developed uh, the tools and skills and uh, know-how necessary to modify the Japanese archipelago to um, be able to feed themselves, clothe themselves, shelter themselves, to defend themselves, and um, entertain themselves, right? Because when you're not eating or sleeping or reproducing or hunting or cooking or, I guess, washing, because they they're making amazing pots. The Jomon, you know, the Jomon example in particular, but there's entertainment also that gets that gets thrown in there because it has uh, it has value. People value it. People value their entertainment. So now, when we think about the Japanese archipelago, how do we go from the Jomon hunter-gatherer community to the imperial court in uh, you know the imperial Yamato court? in the Nara Basin, right? Because that's a huge jump from people just living their lives, eating clams, I don't know, making amazing pots, running around, doing their thing, um, eating little mint leaves. They were really into mint leaves. That was pretty, it's a pretty, uh, oh, dolphin circles, mm -hmm. stone tools. But how do we go from that to an organized, uh, I guess, empire, right? I mean, the English translation they use is the imperial court or the Yamato court and they refer to the Tenno as an emperor so I mean the English translation doesn't really do it justice because it applies uh, an imperial nature which is applicable to the more recent like uh, early 20th century Japan like the actual Japanese Empire but um, it's not technically what we could, you know, refer to the early state development in Japan as. You know, we'll we'll figure it out. We'll see. We'll see as we get there. We're we're on the way. So, Jomon period, no states. No one really claims that there's states there. The first kind of hint or tingling of early state development comes in the Yayoi period. And why is it in the Yayoi period? Because there's social complexity developing. Hmm. Social complexity being associated with the state is one of the key reasons. Sorry. Wait. It's one of the key ways that state governments and state propaganda wings kind of justify and legitimize their rule and existence. If we look at the earliest piece of Japanese uh, propaganda and or Yamato court propaganda, it's the Nihongi and the Kojiki. These were stories written about the ruling family and what they did let's pick one first so we'll do the kojiki the kojiki takes the legitimate the legitimizing authority of the tenno of 
you know, whichever Tenno is existing at the time, and project it back into time immemorial, to the creation of the world, to the creation of the universe. Because the authority invested in the Tenno is the authority that comes down from creator deities, right? Particularly Amaterasu. But if you actually read the goddamn book, it's not just Amaterasu. Amaterasu and one of the older creator deities that kind of just disappears invest his lineage with the authority to rule and order the world, right? And not technically just the world, but the very flat, great place where, you know, rice grows. The, the Kojiki uses really long descriptive names for the lands. But my point is that early state propaganda, like the Kojiki, establishes in the consciousness of people the, that state order and state domination over a population is natural, right? And they spend a lot of, a lot of energy, right? So early histories that we see throughout... Um, throughout East Asia and pretty much the world, history as a discipline kind of stems from either tax, <laughs> uh, tax accounting and or, you know, uh, just general record keeping, which in terms of social complexity, everyone needs to have uh, some sort of record keeping. You know, that's how, uh, you know, commerce works. That's how markets develop. That's how trade and prosperity and wealth develop and grow is um, you gotta have ways of recording things, right? I can let writing go and the general record keeping take place without, without it much, much say from me. Got no, got no squabbles there. But when it comes to the recording of events and the, um, the value assessments of, of these events and individuals and their roles and their, I guess, purposes and the values that are established in historical narratives, it has a very, very strong and clear connection with the rise of states. Because for the most part, if you open a history book, history books are not the stories of people. They're the stories of governments. And if you read the history of England, first question you're going to you know, uh, see is, who's your favorite king? What king did this? What king did that? What duke did that? Same thing in Japan. Talk about history. Boom. You go right into the imperial lineage. History is the story of legitimizing power over populations. Simple as that. And not, I'm not saying that I don't like history. I love history. But as someone who loves history and freedom and not the state, sometimes reading, uh, I have these, what's it called? Like conflicting feelings, right? Where the Kojiki, really great book, but because I understand it as it, you know, what it was written for, propaganda, I understand the kind of lens I have to look at it through, right? I, have to, I know how I can approach it and deal with it because I know what it is fundamentally. Piece of propaganda. Although it's pretty good. I mean, it's, it's a nice little story, but it's propaganda. And that's the, that's the slippery slope that you get with propaganda and with history is that it feels good, Right? Like the stories, they pull you in, they draw you in, they get you, they get you like to buy into, into the mythology, to become part of the mythology, to identify with the mythology, and boom, at that point you've deified uh, a group of people who are systematically stealing from you and your family and your relatives and your community. And 
you've taken, you know, and with this beautiful, with their, with a sexy story, you've gone from, you know, uh, a criminal organization to someone who you borderline want to give your money and resources and goods to. And then let's say if you decide you don't want to, well, you know what? You funded them for such a long time that now they have such a strong, uh, strong leverage over you. And they've convinced all of your neighbors. And you know what? You're the one who woke up from the cult. You know, it sucks to wake up from the matrix. That's my point. And similar to history, because although I very much love history, I love archaeology a little bit more. Because we have the, it's, it's, there's a more tangible element to it, right? Because the archaeological record is something you can touch and like actually engage with as opposed to history, which is also good. You know, it's the written records. It gives us more meat. It gives, archaeology is the meat and potatoes and history is the spice because it puts in narratives, right? But the problem is that when archaeologists take these narratives, right? So let's, let's say, look at the, the Kojiki. If I take the Kojiki and I take the, Jap the Japanese archipelago's archaeological record, chances are people are going to take the Kojiki and use it as a roadmap for understanding the factual realities of, you know, the Japanese archipelago's past. And there's, there's some problems with this because one is the Kojiki has a very clearly biased agenda in terms of its narrative. So everything in the Kojiki should be taken with grains of salt, with just whole mines of salt, with mines of salt that are trying to evade taxes. I guess not mines, fields. That's how they did it. That's how they got salt in Japan in the past. I guess in probably today too. They, um, they farm it on the coast. That's how they get the big salt fields. But once again, I got too excited. I digressed and I ended up at salt mines, salt fields, talking about salt that are not trying to pay taxes on it. Because at some point in medieval Japanese archipelago, taxes were collected in rice. And if you produce something that wasn't rice, it'd be harder to tax, which is you know good for the people making because you get to keep more of your produce. But um, it also made the government talk bad about you and call you a peasant or a landless person or a water drinker. I think that's the translation filthy water drinkers and they're like yeah whatever don't tax me leave me alone i'm gonna sell my boat do some trading head over to korea the korea peninsula not the nation state korea sorry nation state korea you can go fuck yourself just like nation state japan similar feelings so you know don't get don't get too upset i mean you can get upset but whatever you know do you do you you do you um da 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 Yamato Court. I feel like I lost my spot. Oh, yeah. Early state developments in the Japanese archipelago. So the Jomon period, we have no states developing. But in the Yayoi period, following that, we start to see social complexity. And we start to see this idea that states, like the idea of governance. If you look at the historical narrative, you'll see the Yoy period is a period where small chieftains begin to develop. But I would propose that the best way to like kind of think about this is that the authority from states in early Japan kind of develop from and come out of this idea of familial authority, right? So the authority that exists within the familial unit, the family unit, 
and spreads out towards the clan unit, right? This kind of uh, deference to elders and to you know your in your kin groups, that being spread out to non-kin groups, is the development is that like that that transition from familial consensual like organization to statehood, which is where that goes from consensual to coerced, right? And that transition doesn't necessarily have to be like this violent bang. It can be a slow, slippery slide from familial cooperation to, hey, I don't even know the guy, let alone am related to or am consenting to this guy taking the rice and or wood-carved goods and or tools from my village as taxes. I don't even, where are they going from? What, what is happening? There's a transition that happens. Um, and I think the Yoyoi period, I think it's safe-ish to say, right? I like to be credible. The show is called Incredible Discourse, you know? Um, you know, I like to be honest with my thoughts, where I'm confident, where I'm not. And the Yoyoi period, highly probable that most of it is familial units, that are, that are kind of becoming established. And you see the development of a state towards the later Yuyoi period. Um, and this is probably through the transplant of this ideology from the Korean Peninsula, from the Three Kingdoms, right? You got people coming over from Shilla. Shilla. I, I can never pronounce these words right. Shilla. Shilla, Bakje, and the Gaia Confederacy, those little statelets. And that is a whole nother can of worms, right? So for as much as I'm going to talk about the Japanese archipelago and the early state formation here, I've got another whole little spiel about the Gaia Confederacy and, um, and how we can really understand it. But I'm, I'm so close to just jumping down that hole, but I'm not, I promise. No, we'll do that next episode, Gaia Confederacy. Even if it's really short, we're going to head into it. It's going to be fun. Um, it's probably going to be like five minutes. Anyway, check it out. Um, so the Kofun period, right? So we got Jomon, stones, Yoyoi, introduction of bronze agriculture, not bronze agriculture, not growing bronze, but bronze, comma, agriculture, comma, um, iron, whatnot. And then we have the Kofun period. And now some point between the Yoyoi period and the Kofun period, what we have is the development of a state. And maybe we do, maybe we don't. But at some point between the Yuyoi period, the Kofun period, and the Asuka period, we have a state developing, right? The traditional narrative says that it developed at the end of the Yuyoi, and by the time the Kofun period begins, we have an established uh, small chieftains which are becoming regional. Uh, they use the word chieftain. I prefer the word warlord, but, um, you know, to each his own. It's probably a dialectic difference, you know, that uh, that's that's the difference between chieftain and warlord. Is there a difference? I don't know. Maybe there is. Maybe there isn't. But that's this transition, right? So how these establish themselves, right? These these warlords slash uh, regional chieftains. And now we have three forms of production. It's not production, but three three kind of like lines of thinking of, of, of kind of understanding how this happens, right? First one, simple, 
It's what everyone's afraid of. If they had no state, if we lived in anarchy, they're like, what would happen? Warlords would take warlords. I feel like that's how we're that's what we're trying to get to. Warlords would take over, and how would a warlord take over? Via war. They would collect all their buddies. They would collect a bunch of sticks. They'd put points on those sticks, and then they'd go around killing everyone else and taking all of their stuff. But problem is, when you kill people and take their stuff, you know what happens? Those people can't make any more stuff, and you. As a person who just kills people, you don't really make anything either. So when you kill the people who make things and take their stuff, you know what doesn't get made? The things. So you have to go find more people to kill and take their stuff. Chances are you're eventually going to run out of people to kill or find some people who decide, you know what? I'm not really in the mood to be killed to have my stuff stolen today. I'm going to sharpen a stick of my own and I'm going to make sure you don't get to kill and take my stuff today. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough world, tough world we live in. So that's conquest and or defensive violence, because now if you're the group who's being attacked by these, you know, wandering bands of murderous marauders, you now have to circle your wagons and defend yourselves. So now we have the potential development of states and or, um, violence controlling hierarchies from aggressive violence and defensive violence, right? The other option that we have is production. And hypothetically here, you have a familial, a family group that is exceptionally good at production or it just happens to have very, very good land and or abundant resources. And now they're able to outproduce other groups. And now what I'm talking about here, and specifically for the Japanese archipelago, is you have groups of the Yoi peoples coming over, settling in the Japanese archipelago, which I mean people from South Korea, settling in the Japanese archipelago, ag, you know, farming rice, being able to produce enough food that that their in that their small kin groups, that their community can specialize in ways that the other Yoi, the non-agricultural peoples cannot because they don't have the time or resources to. Now this ability to outproduce the surrounding areas, you would think if you're in, uh, if the only way you understand the world is through violence and conquest, you'd think, oh, then they're going to kill everyone. That makes absolutely no sense. I mean, if yeah, it does in terms of like, if you're assuming all of the people from the South are racist xenophobes, but alternate possibility of understanding the situation is let's say, hey, as opposed to starving those people or trying to murder them, you know what? I can take my rice. I can go over there. I can say, hey, you know what you don't have to do as much now? Look for clams because I'm going to trade you some rice. And how about instead of spending all your days looking for clams, you do something else. And that other thing you can give to me and I'll give you some rice. <gasps> it's like we have trade establishing. It's like a market system is being born. Not that it's being born, but it's being further developed. There's an advancement, a complexity in the market system that's developing when we get excessive produce from one producer. Now, this producer has a group, has a family group. And because each one of those people now no longer has to devote as much time to the production of basic resources, they can specialize. And we have a division of labor. Ooh, exciting times, right? 
the so the Yoyoi peoples can come over into the Japanese archipelago and they can start to diversify their skill sets because they also took the know-how from the Korean peninsula to do lots of cool things like grow rice, but not just grow rice, also to work and smelt metals such as copper and iron. And this brings us to our third point, our third way of, of kind of like a state developing, right? And I know the production model doesn't really show a state being produced, like coming into existence, but I'm saying that for a state to come into existence, it has to have the ability to dominate a population or a territory. And it can dominate on a physical violent level, but it can also dominate on an economic level, right? So we have the violent domination, we have economic domination to the point where it creates a dependency and then it can leverage that dependency to further manipulate and control a territorial region, right? And a, and a population. But the other one is the ideological. And this is really the, not the bread and butter, but this is the one that's, that's the, 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 the golden third. The golden third? It's the third one and it's gold. It's not literally gold, but it's, you listen, listen up. So the people from the Korean Peninsula, chances are they still have access to contacts in the Korean Peninsula. And now they have access to what an archaeologist would call ritual goods. Ritual goods because they're fancy, impressive, and the archaeologist doesn't want to take the time to figure out what they were for. They were satisfying once. That's what they were for. What did they want? They wanted that thing. How do we know they wanted it? Because they have it. If they didn't want it, they wouldn't have it. If they didn't want to trade for it, they wouldn't trade for it, and they wouldn't have it. They want it, and we know this because they have it. Simple as that, right? So the Yoyoi communities and or statelets that kind of develop, and here's, here's where I'm going with this, they have access to trade routes that the Jomon peoples don't. And even if the Jomon peoples or the non-South Korean peninsula folk wanted to go over there, they don't have the, the social and cultural ties to the peninsula and or the Ryukyu kingdoms or, or, or continental China to trade and create those kind of networks that are needed to systematically bring in goods and resources, right? So now let's say you have a port city or a port settlement. You're the guy who lives on the coast. You have a boat. You can take rare goods and services, and by goods and services, I mean most likely just goods, right? Let's say you have these beautiful jade polished axes. You can take these that the Jomon make that they don't make in the Japan, in the Japan, in the Korean Peninsula or the Ryukyu Kingdoms or any good that they that is scarce over there. And you can trade. So as opposed to producing, you can now, you know, essentially leverage that pro, your produce to get other goods and then trade them in, you know, favorable markets. It's like the relationship between early state development and economics is like tied hand in hand. Who would have guessed that economics is human action? Not, uh, it would be me. But um, now when we look at the situation, the, the area of the Japanese archipelago in this period, this Yoyoi Kofun transitional period where these kind of um, power centers are growing, right? And then by the time we do have these trade power centers, most archaeologists and historians already jump to state. They're like, a state exists. 
It's a state, early state formation. It happened. It's right there. Look at it. Look how beautiful it is. They get way too excited because they that's their conclusion. Their conclusion is that states are good. Inevitably, we have to get to states. Any sort of social complexity is because a state did it. A state had to had to exist for them to organize this kind of labor. No one could organize labor without without the state. But in reality, the exact opposite is true, where states cannot form without the existence of social complexity. It's not that social complexity is a is is a product of the state of governments. It's that governments only exist because people are productive and self-organized and have complexity and and the ability to generate wealth and dis, you know, establish markets. And that was my point with this whole production exchange aspect, right? So we have the violence. Yeah, we get it. People kill each other. That's yeah, we get it. I don't think any student of history has to be told, oh, what? War happens and and states and governments rise and fall from war. Yes, we know. That's that's obvious. I mean, that's basically like propaganda 101. Propaganda is they have a bad army and we have to have a better, a good army and they're going to fight and the good guys are going to win. That happened. What they always leave out is that for a government to exist... Someone has to make stuff. Kings don't make anything. The state doesn't produce anything. It's a parasite. And a parasite needs the animal to grow off of. That's like saying a cow, uh, cows must existed because we have ticks. Or here's a cow. That means a tick must have existed at the same time. No, the tick jumps on the cow because the cow already existed. The social complexity already developed. And now... We have parasites coming over and leeching off of it. And now when we look at the Japanese archipelago in terms of its social stratus, and I 100% refuse to refer to like the interpretation of history with, with classes because class analysis is flawed. It's fundamentally flawed. And it's flawed because people are individuals. And individuals act in their own good. Hold on a second. I tweeted this out yesterday and it was fucking on point. Okay, here we go. All class theory is flawed simply because people are individuals and are capable of holding contradictory values and choosing means that are inadequate to meet their chosen ends. So, sorry. I'm going to refer to, because I'm talking about history. And for the most part, lots of people in history and contemporary world like to refer to people as some sort of um, some sort of group, as like a member of the group that can only act um, in that group's interest or in that group's favor. It's like uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like Marxist theory because that's exactly what Marxism is: class or what's it called? Uh, dialectic materialism. But it doesn't hold water, and I can take that apart later. But for now, we're going to look at groups of people. And I'm going to refer to these groups of people as just, you know, amalgamations of archetypes of people. Because obviously there's variation, you know, because people are individuals and they make poor decisions or good decisions. They make all sorts of decisions. Um, so you have the people who come over from the peninsula. That's a group of people. Exciting times. Settled in, farming rice, trading with the natives, having a grand old time, digging... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Digging 
moats around their settlements. And we see this in the archaeological record. You see Yoyoi um, settlements. And you can see the agricultural peoples start building moats around, <laughs> around their settlements. But then you also see it around just deposits of goods. So they're building these kind of moats to protect. But then you also start to see them in the previous, in the, the coexisting Jomon uh, settlements. You start to see these like moats also being built. So some people are adopting the culture of the people who are coming over. So some of the Jomones, for lack of a better word, are adopting the Yuyoi culture. So you have this group of people who are culturally, ethnically, biologically, linguistically from the Korean Peninsula. And then you have the people who, they show up from the Korean Peninsula and they intermingle with the, the local groups. So you have the Korean Peninsula folk and then you have the Yuyoi. And the Yuyoi are really who I'm going to refer to as the people who are those mixed people. Those people who are the product and offspring of people who come from the Korean Peninsula and the native Jomon folk. Then you have the Jomon who have decided we just like the culture that came over. We're just going to adopt it. They're not mating with anyone else. They're just the same group of people biologically, but now they've added a new cultural aspect. They're the ones most likely to trade with these, you know, the new the new immigrants. Then on top of that, I guess outside of that, not on top of that. I mean, maybe you can stay on top of each other, but the Jomon who decided, you know what? I'm not into the culture, but I'll trade. Like, I don't want to do that, but I like what you're doing. And I'll, I'd like to trade for some of that rice. I don't want to do the rice myself. Absolutely not. That disgusts me. I've got all these clams to eat. But what I will do is I'm going to trade some of these delicious clams for some of that delicious rice. Or even better yet, I'll make some of these beautiful bracelets and I can trade. Or pots, because the Jomon are fucking amazing at making pots. And then you have the Jomon who live a little bit further away. You know, they're not close enough to make sweet love. They're not close enough to really adopt the culture. They're not close enough to trade, but they're close enough to kind of like catch wind of. And then they can start to imitate, right? Where they're like, hey, I heard that, you know, a couple of miles down, like it's not a couple, <laughs> but, you know, down the shore, different part of the area, you know, you know, mountain folk, news travels. They're doing this XYZ way, and maybe we can try it. So you have people imitating. And then outside of that, even further away, you have the Jomon who just decide, nah, we're good. We don't need any of it. Don't need to trade. Don't need to make sweet, sweet love. Don't need to even try to imitate. We're just going to completely reject all of this new fancy schmancy agriculture and new culture and uh, you know social traditions coming in. So now, those are the groups... This is kind of the, the setting that we're looking at in the early Japanese archipelago. And the problem is, because this is all prehistory, we're basing the events and social phenomenon off of an archaeological record and general knowledge of human behavior and evidence. So, like I said, everything I'm saying today when it comes to Japanese archipelago, you know, spec it's an interpretation of the archaeological record and uh, critical analysis of Japanese uh, historical narratives. That's what you can. That's how you can understand my my rant today. So, central question. An hour into it, 
we're getting to the central question. I mean, obviously, we, we talked about the state. We talked about this transitional period between the UUI and the Kofun, and at what point we see a state developing. And now, in reality, it looks like a state concept, this, the idea of stateness, is something that was brought over with rice agriculture, right? And similar to the beautiful rice crops, it takes time to germinate, to grow, and to bear fruit. And by the time the Kofun period shows up, that's the fruit that we're looking at. Because if we look at the Kofun as itself, as like a as an item, as an object, as a monument, we can see that it's full of grave goods, stuff that people just buried in it. And now a lot of people interpret this mound as a status symbol, right? As a collection of all of the goods that, you know, whoever had it built was able to accumulate. So once again, we see that market forces create the conditions for us to interpret this material culture as the development of a state. But even the Kofun, like the Kofun establishment, still doesn't show us that a state exists. Because you, it's it's it's, it's gonna be hard to prove. It's gonna be real hard. I'm skeptical, and it's gonna be hard to prove the at the, what point in time, from an archaeological like standpoint, a state exists. It's tough. It's a tough one. I know it's tough because I'm putting a real real difficult standard on it. But for as much as I like to look at market forces and uh, free market trade and production. We also have to consider, you know, some of the interpretations that have existed that do hold water that, you know, I'm not going to completely fight that I have to take into consideration, you know, because the name of the show is Incredible Discourse. And I can't have a discourse where it's not credible, where I don't even, like, look at the people I disagree with. But so the Kofun is a link to the development of the state. I like to, I want, in reality, yeah, I want it to be more market-based, but we can also look at it this way, right? So the creation of these Kofuns is solidifying clan solidarity across regions, right? So we have this, like I said before, the familial authority kind of branching out outside of a clan. So it unifies a clan, and then it kind of brings other families into the clan aspect. And this fits pretty stinking well with... Um, with how Japanese politics in the Asuka period and the Heian period um, kind of play out in the historical record, right? Where we see basically the Yamato clan and the other clans that pay tribute to it are the main actors. So we have this clan solidarity across regions, right? The Kofuns that are built are also growing reliance on large-scale producers, that's what I said before about how markets play a key role into the development of the state because you can't have a state without like like solid markets, you know? And then, so let's see. Other reason, what I said before, intercommunal competition for dominance over. So people like to look at these Kofuns and they see the establishment of Kofuns as rival groups, rival clans. And now these clans... They compete for territory, for resources, for people, for foreign contacts, right? The people you're going to trade with in foreign areas. Because despite you're like, oh, they just want to get the lamps or the the lamps, the bells or the raw material stuff. But 
there's a strong narrative potency to foreign goods. If you have access to foreign rare goods, you have access to power that local people do not have. And you can wield that power to manipulate and to, you know, to get pe- to dominate people, right? You can say, hey, everyone who's going to work for me, who's going to become part of my state, this is the develop. This is where we see this development start. Is you see a core group of people who directly benefit from allegiance to this core state, right? And they're big enough producers that are able to leverage their market power over a smaller groups. So you have one person who's able to leverage these other people. It's a market. It's like a pyramid scheme. So in in conclusion. So we're going to finish it soon. We're, we're almost done. In conclusion, right? So the state is often established outside of pyramids. But I'm going to put this together, right? Ready for my, ready for my conspiracy theory? Egypt, one of the oldest states, built pyramids. Done. I should have I just had that. I should have been like, states are pyramid schemes. You can tell. Egypt, one of the first states, and they built pyramids. And it would have been like 15 seconds long. Done. Conspiracy theory. Pyramids invented the state. That's how I would have switched it. That's how I would have switched up. Because, you know, pyramid, not pyramid schemes. Um, conspiracy theory has got to be spicy. You know, it's got to have a little spice to it. And that's how, that's how I would have spiced up. But anyway, when it comes to the state, state's often established as a means to an end. But what are these means? And what are these ends? So social complexity is often seen as the means to state organization. State organization is the means for building monuments and tombs. That people are like, oh, you have to have a state before you have tombs. If someone, how could anyone build a pyramid without a state? Pyramid, bad example. (laughs) How could anyone build a kofum without a state? Done. Much better. Even though it's uh, pyramid shaped. Shut up. It's not that pyramid shaped. It's a little pyramid shaped. But my point, I, I rest my point. You can have a, a Kofun built without a state. There's nothing state-ish about it aside from that. Someone spent a lot of money and resources on it. Real money, not bullshit fiat money like rice and bronze and salt, copper, all that good stuff. But anyway, but now the means for state organization that off, people often think of is to um, to build these monuments. But now these monuments and tombs, what is the end that they're trying to achieve? I feel like I had a point to this. And now I feel like this point eludes me. Hmm. Anyway, the whole point, the main point, as you may have guessed from the beginning where I talked about the state and uh, it's nature as a resource-sucking parasite on communities and society. And then the second part where I talked about how states can't exist without markets. And then I flavored it with the story of the Japanese archipelago. Right? Talked about economics. Talked about how we should all uh, oppose the state and probably should be abolished. We talked about rice agriculture. Pretty good episode, if you ask me. I'm uh, I'm not gonna listen to this. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna hit the 
send. No, here's what's going to happen. I'm done ranting. It's like midnight. I'm tired. So I'm going to put the intro music in the beginning. Just throw it there. Some intro music right now. You're probably listening to it over this. It's like that. Dun, 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 dun. You know, well, you're, you're listening to it right now. I'm going to put it over me talking. And, um, and we're going to call it a night. Next time, I'm going to rant about, and you know what? I might just do it in like a minute. I might pause it and just do the new episode. No, I'm going to wait. It's too late. Too late for me. We're going to be doing the Kayak Confederacy. It's probably going to be real short because I'm not even going to open a book on it. I've already done my reading. It's just an interesting topic that I like. Um, and uh, that's pretty much it. I hope that if you've listened to all of this and you're if you reached this point and you can still hear me, I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Uh, send me an email and I'll give you a call and I'll thank you for listening to the whole thing myself because I'm no one listens to this show except maybe Nick. Nick? Yeah, you know you are Nick. Fucking shout out, right? See, if I know you listen to the show, you get a cool shout out at the very end. Um, so yeah, that's pretty much it for today. Uh, next time we're going to be doing the guy confederacy um, I'm still going to see if I'm going to shoot some emails out to get some people on and maybe I can uh, have some interviews that would be fun, not interviews but just like various fun topics with people who I think are interesting or have like, or do research or have something that I think is interesting That'd be cool. something related to history probably the Japanese archipelago that seems to be my, my theme and, um, and that's pretty much it hope you enjoyed listening to Incredible Discourse. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, hit me up at IncredibleDiscourse.com. <gasps> IncredibleDiscourse.com. Do we have a full website? Yes, we have a full website now. It's like a real website. It's not just IncredibleDiscourse at WordPress.com. It's now IncredibleDiscourse.com. And uh, I guess you're on the podcast already. I'm also on Twitter, ICDSean, at Twitter. I guess it's just IncredDis. It's t- whatever you type into Twitter. It's the, like the at, and then it's in credis. Um, I'll try to be. Uh, I'll try to be on Twitter more until I get kicked off. But you know, it's what it is. Um, anyway, good night.